Welcome to Enemies from War to Wisdom. Why do we need enemies? From intimate relationships to politics, tribalism, and community, we cannot seem to stop dehumanizing each other. Chronic conflicts in our families, societies, and nations seem inevitable. In this podcast, we analyze human hostilities from the most mundane to the most sophisticated. We apply psychology, psychoanalysis, art, spirituality, and relational theory in conversations about belonging and othering. Each program reaches for a fresh wisdom that shows us how to step back from creating enemies in our lives. I'm your host, Jill Abelock, a book artist, end-of-life doula and spiritual caregiver, and mindfulness meditation teacher. I'm here with my co-host, Polly Young-Eisendrath, who is a psychologist, Jungian analyst, author, and speaker. We approach our ideas each from our own worlds, but always from the spirit and teachings of Buddhism, of which we are lifelong practitioners. Today's podcast is a continuation of our last podcast on projection and projective identification. What do they mean? Why are even simple topics often difficult to discuss? especially if people have different viewpoints. Unconscious communication occurs primarily through facial expression, gesture, implication, and vocal tone and rhythm, more than words. In psychoanalysis, there's a name for this kind of powerful emotional communication. It's called projection and projective identification. In this episode, We'll continue to talk about how this kind of communication works in our private and public worlds and what we can do to sort out our meanings. Robert Caper, psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, who is a recognized expert on projective identification, continues to be our special guest in this episode. What we are trying to evoke from others, how we're driven in what we're trying to evoke, and also then the way others experience us, it has so little to do with the words. I mean, that's the sad, almost tragic thing about these homo sapiens who've developed all this language and these abstract concepts and all this data and so on. Those are the least influential in many communication situations. And so it's it's almost seems sometimes like it's a hopeless, it's a hopeless kind of goal to try to understand each other. The key to that is really endeavoring to understand yourself because you can only, because so much of how we relate to others is based on ourselves and what we are projecting, at least understanding what we are projecting gives us a little bit of a possibility of understanding and relating to others. Is that a fair statement? Well, you know, I mean, sort of like good luck and understanding yourself also. I mean, it's, mm. I, I mean, that's the yeah, business yeah. I'm in is to help people do that. But that's also not a direct channel mm-hmm. where, where I think that we can actually tap into our experiences, that we can listen to what we're saying in our own heads. We can notice what's going on in our bodies up to a certain point, particularly if we stop long enough to actually get a sense of that. And, and then if we recognize that other people are not making us feel that way or say those things internally, it gives us a little bit more freedom 
to realize that we're having subjective experiences while somebody is trying to communicate with us. And those experiences may overtake our ability to understand them. And then also, we may at that moment not really be in touch with ourselves either because we're so emotionally thrown by what we perceive as the other person offending us. So, you know, there's that issue of simply slowing down and trying to sense your own subjective mm -hmm. experiences. Mm -hmm. And it gives you a certain kind of modesty also because you realize that you're not necessarily a good listener, you know, and you might think you are. You know, the whole idea of accurate listening and accurate responding is something that takes effort and, and also interest. It's not something that happens automatically between people, especially when they are doing this, which they're often doing, motivated by their own desires, motivated by their emotional threat. What, what do you think, Robert? Do you think it's a hopeless thing to try to communicate through these confusions? Well, not hopeless, obviously. <laughs> I'm in the same business uh, you are, so obviously I don't think it's hopeless. But <laughs> Sometimes from that business, I think it's hopeless. <laughs> but there's, you know, you, you could ask, well, it's, it, it can seem hopeless because these are um, channels of communication that are extremely powerful, have a very powerful impact on us, and at the same time uh, of which we are unaware. So, which is a sounds like a hopeless situation, but uh, there there was some some interesting research, laboratory research, not psychoanalytic research, that a man named Condon did in the 1960s, where he took newborns, ages from about two days to 14 days, and he uh, did high-speed cinematography of them, and then he had people speak to them, and he found that these babies, their bodily movements synced up with the rhythm of the speech. If it was speech, if it was just a rhythmic sound, like a tapping sound, so that it didn't happen. Hmm. So there's something that's conveyed in human, and of course it obviously didn't matter what language they were being spoken to in. There's something about language there that has a non-syntactical component, a musical component, because these babies obviously also did not understand the meaning of the words. There's a musical component that we actually respond to without knowing it. And the same thing happens with adults. Adults will dance to the rhythm of the speaker's voice in very subtle ways without knowing they're doing it. And the speaker doesn't know that that's happening. The speaker does the same thing to the rhythm of his or her own voice, subtle gestures and movements. So. It has an extremely powerful impact. It goes back to birth, and you don't know you're doing it. And that's the unconscious in, in psychoanalysis. Something that goes back to birth, it's been going on forever, for, for your whole life, has a very powerful impact on your experience, and you don't know you're doing it. So, is it hopeless? Is, does that mean you, you can't deal with this, or you can't do anything about it? Well, there's one I, thing I, about that birth thing, though, that I want to, because I don't want to lose this thread. You come into being inside of a particular person who has a particular rhythm of speech. If you're 
separated from that person at birth and you never actually hear that rhythm of speech again. There is a loss, we know just from research again, that has been done on adopted children. Um, but if you grow up in, let's say, a tribe of speakers that have a certain rhythm, and then later you're marrying into a different tribe or you're, you're lining up with a different tribe, that even that rhythm can have different meanings to people. I mean, I've seen people again in a couple situation where one person's manner, rhythm, manner, speaking, and so on, actually means something that is problematic to the other person, although that first person clearly is not intending hostility or manipulation or, you know, threat as the other person is hearing it. So to make things, let's say, you know, really more complicated, these days people get together with other people that may come from different tribes, have completely different manners, gestures, and so on. And now also people have identifications with genders that are not their birth, body, assigned gender. All of these things in many ways, I think, create complexity around that rhythm thing, or even some fundamental sense of, oh, I'm at ease, and so I can, you know, let my defenses down. I mean, that's again taking that idea of, yes, it is hopeful that we respond to the rhythms of speech, but now we also are asked where we're asking ourselves to respond to lots of rhythms that weren't originally our own rhythms. Do you see what I mean? It's like we're, we've gotten ourselves into very complex territory. Well, I, I think of it as, as like music. You know, we, we, all, we all listen to music and we all respond to music, but we, we don't all have what musicians call an ear. Uh, so, so, well, we all have kind of in here, but some of the musicians, people who are trained in music uh, and who are real musicians, have a better ear than people who are not trained. I think it's possible, perhaps, to be trained, to train your ear, to listen to the rhythms, this, this uh, channel of communication over which projective identification is transmitted, and to then be aware by listening to yourself and others of the subtle, the subtle aspects of communication that, that are the vehicle of projective identification. And once you become aware, for example, that someone is trying to make you feel a certain way, you're less vulnerable to it. You don't, you don't get swept up by it. You can analyze it. It's not, maybe not the best word. I would try to say it the other way. I think that maybe what psychoanalysis does is train your ear to listen to that kind of communication, to that channel of communication that's ordinarily unattended to. I, I take what you say about birth and, and uh, living inside another person. I don't think this starts at birth. It's present at birth. It's easy to measure after birth. It's very hard to measure in the uterus. But I'm sure it starts 
long before birth. Oh, oh, it starts at four months in her uterine. They've measured it now. It's when they. It's when, it's the, when uh, the infant starts to hear the mother's voice. When the auditory system and the, gets wired. Yes, gets yeah. organized. It's yeah. the first. It's the first perceptual yeah, system no, to that, get interuterine four months. And, that, that makes perfect sense. And then the baby's responding to the mother's voice differently than to anybody else's voice. Prefers the mother's voice, and actually is interactive with the mother's voice in her uterine. And so it's not just at birth, it starts before birth. But getting back to the other thing about being tuned to projective identification, obviously ordinary people who are not trained psychoanalysts have to be able to work through the weeds of projective identification if they have any hope of creating a trusting environment in which they can talk about their experiences with a partner with a friend, a colleague, you know, in an organization, and so on. So there has to be something more than psychoanalytic training as sort of hope for people. Oh, quite right, quite right. I mean, I, I, you don't have to be a trained psychoanalyst to, uh, to develop this here, and, and some people have it, you know, just naturally. But for those who don't, you don't have to become a psychoanalyst, but you should have psychoanalysis because that's what it does for you. It trains your ear in that way. One of the things it does, and it may be one of the more important things that it does. I would counter that I don't think anybody has a natural ear for this, because I think that when you are experiencing emotional threat in a way that you've already experienced and been wounded by, and everybody has, everybody's been wounded in their childhood, everybody's been threatened, Everybody has had experiences where they, their needs haven't been met and or they've been abandoned or abused or oppressed or whatever because it's just in the nature of being powerless and contained in somebody else's reality. When you, when you are in an emotional threat or in an experience of emotional threat where your own welfare is at risk, I don't mean when you're you know, in a professional role, but when you're in your family relationships and when you're in your couple relationship, I don't think anybody's an expert. I think at that moment, you ha you're up against your own emotional defensive system. And that one thing that can be very ordinary and very helpful is to have some humility and modesty about what you know and what you're hearing and what you're doing. So if you can maintain curiosity in those moments where you want to control the other person or you experience yourself as shutting down, if you can maintain curiosity and interest and modesty, you can kind of bootstrap your way through the confusion and pain by recognizing that you yourself are enclosed within your own subjective experience and you're defending it because you're hurt or you're angry or you're afraid or whatever, and that the other person is also doing the same. And so it requires slowing down. It requires being interested in what the other person is saying. And also, I think in a really important way, it requires your willingness to find out if you've understood or not. Because many people feel like, I got it. I've heard you say that many times. And they have this sense that their partners have said the same things over and over again. 
and I can tell you from working with couples, nobody says the same thing over and over unless they are not understood. Nobody loves they to don't repeat. feel understood. They don't have the experience of being understood. Right. And so nobody will repeat the same thing. We don't love repeating the same thing. In fact, we're bored with it. In fact, people say, I don't like to say this again. But they don't have the experience of being understood. So when you slow it down, and as the listener, you realize maybe your, your ears weren't accurate. Maybe you have to check. Is this what you meant? Until the person says, yes, you got it. You really got it. And then you want to check a little further. Is there more? So you can fill out the picture of that person's subjective experience without agreeing with it, without endorsing it, without saying, yes, that is the CIA. You know, you're just trying to find out what the other person is experiencing. And then once you've got that, you have a better chance of responding from your own point of view because you're no longer trying to persuade or promote or whatever. Now you've, you've got, okay, this is what X is saying. And so now, and X agrees to this, and so now I want to say, you know, where I am in regard to X. And I find that when people can do that, what is so amazing to me is that individuals experience tremendous relief. They experience the sense of, oh, wow, I've just understood. And I'm allowed to speak about this. And this other person understands. So it's that slowing down of that process. And honestly, I think that that's what psychoanalysts do when they're working with people, but they don't have the emotional investment that they have in their kitchens and their bedrooms when they're actually working with their own lives. And at, the, at that point, I do not find psychoanalysts any more adept than any ordinary person in terms of you know dealing with emotional threat in domains where they have something at stake, for example, in their professional organizations and so on. They split and they go into schisms as often as anybody does. So, you know, I think that the skill is something that you can develop professionally, like you can be a good skier and, uh, you know, you develop a skill at that and you manage your fears and you manage your feelings, but it's not the same when you're in your own kitchen. I, you're in your own bedroom. And I think you know. I think part of the challenge of that goes back to something that Robert pointed out um, that I I hadn't thought of just from my own understanding of proje- projective identification, and that is that, I mean, my sense of projective identification was that it was largely projection. My role in the projection was sort of setting up the other person mm. to behave in a certain way. And what you pointed out, Robert, is that I very well could be doing that with somebody who already has a proclivity to behave that way. And so then the fact that they have a proclivity or, you know, the organization, but I'd rather bring this sort of to a more interpersonal level. So the fact that the person who I am projecting into or projectively identifying into already has a proclivity to be that way makes my projection automatically validated and makes it seem clear. And which is something that, 
Thank you, because I did. It, I didn't well, quite validated in quotes. Yes, validated in quotes. In in my experience, yeah, yeah. right? It becomes self. It becomes self validating. So and and also then more challenging to disentangle, you know, because really simple example. Um, two people are having a conversation, and one person feels not heard and the way that that feeling not heard takes shape is that they feel continually interrupted they feel that they're not allowed to express themselves perhaps that came from a wound in childhood when where there was a dismissive parent and so and they they partner with somebody who has a tendency to be interruptive in conversations and the difference I think is that and please add or correct me but the difference is that okay so there is somebody who is being interruptive, but the motivation for that interruptiveness is not the dismissiveness of the dismissive parent. It's just a conversational style. However, the person who has always felt dismissed projects that dismissiveness into their partner. Yeah. Right. Right. And yeah, and it's again with different tribes because Italian families, to some extent Jewish families, and I've seen the research on this way back, Monica McGoldrick did a lot of research on family communication problem processes and patterns. Some families interrupt all the time. It's considered to be part of enthusiasm, liveliness. Other families, which tend towards the sort of waspy, New England-y type of family, have this idea that interrupting is impolite and you have to let the person finish so they never interrupt. And so those are family styles. They're not necessarily personality styles. And you're right, when the two get together, there can be this sense that your projection is confirmed. And then that control thing tends to come in. Then you want to shape and mold the other person. I want to go back to something Polly said about the fact that, that psychoanalysts, even psychoanalysts have difficulties in their families and difficulties in their marriages and difficulties in their organizations, which is just really saying even psychoanalysts have an unconscious. Mm -hmm. which uh, mm -hmm. shouldn't come as news to anybody, but it, it does seem to come as news to some people who idealize psychoanalysts and think, you know, if you're psychoanalyzed, you don't have an unconscious and you don't have any of these unconscious problems. And I, I, I feel that's, that's obviously an idealization. It's certainly not true, as Polly was pointing out. And I think it's a very destructive idealization because it makes people feel that there's a standard somewhere which is impossible, literally impossible, for humans to achieve. Nonetheless, I think, like to take the example of skiing, you can you can practice and train to to ski, but some people are more athletic than others, and some people, you know, you can uh, have analysis and and refine your capacities, your sensitivity to this kind of communication. But some people are just better at it than others. But that really doesn't matter, in, mm -hmm. in a sense, because everyone has their limits. Everyone has their limits. And the idea is not to get rid of limits. The idea is to expand the range and expand your, your limits. You can expand your limits, but you can also become more modest about what you know, which is really quite different from just expanding. It's a recognition that you are limited and that you need other people in order to know ah, your own Thank mind. You. Thank you for reminding me of that. Yeah, everyone has their limits, and I agree with you that it's it's uh, it's good if you can be modest. It's good if you can remain curious, and 
the kind of situation that you're talking about where people get tangled up in projective identifications are situations in which their capacity to do that has been exceeded. You know, they've just reached their limit. I agree that it's good to be that way, but we're talking about situations which are by definition difficult to be that way in. So uh, again, I think expanding limits, expanding your tolerance and your ability to remain interested and curious and modest is, is a good thing. And I think a good analysis does that. A, uh, a psychoanalyst friend of mine named Horacio Echigoyen once said, you know, that after you've had a good analysis, you're better than you were, but that doesn't mean you're better than anyone else. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it's, but I, I don't want to seem as though we're an advertisement here for psychoanalysis. I think psychoanalysis is a form of mental health treatment or whatever you want to call it. Jung called it later life pedagogy. He felt like it was a form of education to go through an analysis. It still tends to be the opportunity of privileged people. It is rare that people who don't have a lot of privilege can set aside the time and of course these days the money as well to have a psychoanalysis and I don't think that many of our listeners probably have been through a real psychoanalysis Uh, maybe some have and maybe some are interested and I think it's good to say this is one uh, one path you can follow to develop your sensitivity to projective identification but also in relating in a couple relationship, you'll have endless opportunity to slow down and to be more modest and to show curiosity and to actually try to see what the other person is saying and to try to get it without agreeing with it, without endorsing it, and simply taking on the experiment within your own world of can you go back and forth with a person that you fundamentally disagree with or that you feel hurt by? And can you do that in a way that increases your limits, like you said, that, that actually makes you more tolerant, that allows you to know more about yourself or more about somebody else? So I think couple relationship, while it's certainly no substitute for a psychoanalysis, I think it also opens a path or, or a method for doing this kind of, uh, let's say, surrendering of one's desire to control. That there is that issue for almost all couples, or not almost all, for all couples, of each person trying to control the other person's experiences and realities in order to get the needs of the self met, the desires of the self met, or to protect the ways in which one feels emotionally threatened. So, you know, this couple relationship thing does open a path for people in regular everyday life that, you know, gives them opportunity to learn about protective identification. And I'd, I'd like to add something to that because I, I, I think that, that that's true. I mean, that's actually been my experience. I'm not a psychoanalyst. I think that the other piece of slowing down and being curious is that in, for example, the case of somebody who feels, who experiences interruptiveness as dismissiveness, um, if in that moment 
that person can slow down enough and be curious enough about what's going on within themselves and recognize that they're feeling dismissed, then that can be brought forward. Mm-hmm. And they can say, in, in, rather than, you never listen to me, you always interrupt me, I can never talk to you, they can say, I feel dismissed. Now, if their partner says, well, it wasn't my intention to dismiss you, if they're feeling dismissed, there's an area of work. There's, mm-hmm. there's the dance of, um, okay, do I want to believe that you are not actually dismissing me because I feel so dismissed? And that's where being in analysis or being in therapy can help because you start to recognize your own processes better. However, even if you're not, if you can start to sort through what is arising in you without attributing what's arising to the person who you're speaking with, it just creates a, a broader path for communication. Yeah, that whole idea that somebody makes you feel that way right. really needs to be dropped. People do not make you feel the right. way you feel. You are experiencing things the way you're experiencing them. Uh, I, I just I just want to add that I think Polly is, is actually being too modest about her own work. That, that to the degree that she is dealing in her couples therapy with uh, projective identification and, I, and, and identifying it even if she doesn't use that term. I don't use it either when I'm dealing with patients as a rule, but she's dealing with it and she's getting people to slow down and to observe and pay attention to what's going on that she's doing that aspect of her work is psychoanalysis. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not people don't have access to psychoanalysis. Even if they're not in analysis, they have access to people like Polly who have been trained in psychoanalysis. And you know, once you once you get it, it doesn't leave you. And so it's got to be part of her work. And I think uh, it's not as uh, black and white as all that. You know, it sounds to me like uh, from what I know of your work, and I know something about your work, obviously. <laughs> you're you're when you're dealing with that kind of projective identification in the way that you are, you're doing what I would call psychoanalysis. Well, thanks for the compliment. You know, it's interesting because these days I call it mindfulness when I work with people because they don't usually respond to the term psychoanalysis. And so I say, well, this is mindfulness. We're slowing things Uh down. We're noticing what's going on subjectively. We're remaining curious and open and so on and so forth. But I agree that is also the experience of psychoanalysis. That's what we're doing in psychoanalysis. You know, for, for, for many, 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 I think really unfortunate reasons, psychoanalysis has dropped off of the kind of cultural radar, just as mindfulness has kind of come on the cultural radar. And, you know, maybe 30 years ago, it was a compliment to, to say to people, oh, we're doing psychoanalysis here. And no, it's not. I mean, now, you know, people say to me sometimes, oh, psychoanalysis? Well, that's just talking, isn't it? And, you know, I always say it has nothing to do with talking because what it really has to do with is what we're talking about here, which is projective identification and working with the anxiety and threat that comes about when you try to control the other person to get them to do what you assume they're doing, but that they're not doing because you've actually projected it. And, you know, that whole dynamic, which is, comes, the investigation of it, comes out of the psychoanalytic world. That dynamic 
I believe, creates troubles in the Buddhist world that cannot be investigated without the psychoanalytic ideas. Because there is nothing in the Buddhist world that replicates projective identification. There's a knowledge of projection, and there's a knowledge of idealization, but there's not the knowledge of the confusing mix-up and the desire to control. And the knowledge along those lines would help so many Buddhist communities, so many teachers and students who are getting into terrible scandals if they really understood this dynamic and how to work with it. And so it's an interesting thing to bring the psychoanalytic and the mindfulness conversation you know, up to date because it's like the cultural meaning of psychoanalysis has, you know, has fallen out of favor. And it's just, it's a shame, but it's a well, fact. I agree. Also. I agree. Psychoanalysis has a bad PR problem. <laughs> and, uh, but I'm kind of like Bernie. You know, he's a lifelong socialist. He's never made any bones about it. That's that's what he is. And you know, there was a time when getting up in public and saying you were a socialist, it was like you were practically taking your life in your hands in this country. But now, socialism has been rehabilitated. <laughs> So you can actually talk about being a socialist without getting killed. So I have hope. I have hope to the future. You're not going. Well, I don't think anybody would kill you if you said you were a psychoanalyst. No, but they mean, but they would dismiss you quickly if they if they're not familiar with it. They would go, "Oh, that's talk therapy. That's that's just an old chapter in the in the psychotherapy book. You know, it's no, an old that, Freud chapter." That's why I have hope because the situation with socialism was even worse. And if that can be okay now, anything can happen. Well, there, I, I mean, I have hope for a slightly different reason. I, I think that with mindfulness coming to the West and with Buddhism coming to the West, both, both um, William James and Carl Jung said that when Buddhism would come to the West, it would change psychology and that psychology would open up in a way that it hadn't previously. And my feeling is that the conversation between Buddhism, not just mindfulness, but Buddhism and psychoanalysis, is one of the most important and least attended to conversations going on in the West today. And that, you know, one of the the things that Buddhism has added to people's experience is the notion that if you slow your awareness down and you pay attention precisely to what is actually going on in what we call the present moment, that you're going to gain something from that. That happens in psychoanalysis when you're in an analysis. That's a point of convergence. Yes, it's a point of... Right. And that has gotten into the popular culture. Part of the problem is that the people that talk about that from a mindfulness point of view are unacquainted often with psychoanalysis. And those very people may be participating in a community that has fallen apart from a scandal that was a result of projective identification, but they had no knowledge that psychoanalysts who are working with slowing down and paying attention might be working with slowing down and paying attention to this very thing that causes scandals and this desire to control others. So that, from my point of view, is a hopeful sign that mindfulness 
is kind of this huge, you know, and unfortunately it's a commodity in the West, but it's a huge development in the West, much bigger than psychoanalysis because it, it appears to be more democratic, you know, that you can learn it without spending a lot of money. But it's going to bump up against the need for psychoanalysis, I think, in these coming decades, if we're going to handle mm -hmm. what's been happening to Buddhist groups in the West, where these kinds of scandals involving projective identification are not going to just get shed by the wayside like they might have in Asia. You know, so if Buddhism wants to go further and develop into being a useful way of people relating to each other, developing the spiritual path that it brings, it's going to have to deal with the entanglements, the emotional entanglements in the communities. So, you know, I, I feel there's no hopefulness in mm -hmm. mindfulness bringing psychoanalysis back into the culture larger culture. I agree. And to kind of sew it together for myself, I think that, that the characteristics that you described that are part of both the practice of mindfulness and the psychoanalytic process, the slowing down, the curiosity, I think that those are, those are also essential skills that will start to be hopefully, this is part of the hopeful part for me, hopefully communicated and held as necessary and important. And that's where both psychoanalysis and Buddhism and the mindfulness movement can contribute, you know, to the culture at large, that eventually our culture or cultures around the world will hold these qualities as necessary and important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's a very hopeful note to, to think about ending on. Did, did you want to add anything else? Well, it's been a real pleasure to have Robert Caper with us today. And Thank just you so much, Robert. Thank you. Point of advertising, uh, or whatever we call it, truth and advertising. Robert Caper is my life partner, and so he's not simply my colleague and esteemed and respected colleague, but he's also my life partner. So we managed to get through the podcast without... <laughs> too, too much <laughs> combativeness and I really enjoyed having you here you added a tremendous amount thank you Robert well thank you for inviting me thanks so much for listening to continue the conversation you can follow us on Facebook Instagram and Twitter our Patreon page supports real dialogue for opposing sides live events please visit it at www.patreon.com forward slash real dialogue, all one word. You can find past episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and Castbox. Enemies from War to Wisdom is recorded and produced by Chris Coltrane.